Hello and welcome to episode 444 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It is my pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Terence M. Stanton. We are recording on Friday, February 17th, 2023, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us begin with the Friday prayer to the Most Blessed Virgin Mary to obtain love towards her and Jesus Christ by St. Alphonsus Liguri. O Mary, I already know that thou art the most noble, the most sublime, the most pure, the most beautiful, beautiful, the most benign, the most holy, in a word, the most amiable of all creatures. O that all knew thee, my lady, and loved thee as thou dost merit. But I am consoled when I remember that in heaven and on earth there are so many happy souls who live enamored of thy goodness and beauty. Above all, I rejoice that God himself loves thee alone more than he loves all men and angels together. My most amiable queen, I, a miserable sinner, love thee also, but I love thee too little. I desire a greater and more tender love towards thee, and this thou must obtain for me, since to love thee is a great mark of predestination, and a grace which God only grants to those whom he will save. I see also, my mother, that I am indeed under great obligations to thy son. I see that he merits infinite love. Thou, who desirest nothing else but to see him loved, has to obtain me this grace above all others. Obtain me great love for Jesus Christ. Thou obtainest all that thou willest from God. Ah, then be graciously pleased to obtain me the grace to be so united to the divine will that I may never more be separated from it. I do not ask of the earthly goods, honors, or riches. I ask thee for that which thy heart desires most for me. I wish to love my God. Is it possible that thou refusest to second this, my desire, which is so pleasing to thee? Ah, no, thou already helpest me. Already thou prayest for me. Pray, pray, and cease not to pray until thou seest me safe in heaven, beyond the possibility of evermore losing my God and certain to love him forever together with thee, my dearest mother. We are also going to pray day four of the Holy Face Novena, and we will begin with the daily preparatory prayer. O most holy and blessed Trinity, through the intercession of Holy Mary, whose soul was pierced through by a sword of sorrow at the sight of the passion of her divine Son, we ask thy help in making a perfect novena of reparation to Jesus, united with all his sorrows, love, and total abandonment. We now implore all the angels and saints to intercede for us as we pray this holy novena to the most holy face of Jesus and for the glory of the most holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Fourth day. For behold, thou hast loved truth, the uncertain and hidden things of thy wisdom thou hast made manifest to me. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Thou shalt wash, wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. Psalm 50, verses 8 and 9. O Lord Jesus, who hast said, Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and who didst manifest upon thy holy face the sentiments of thy divine heart, grant that we may love to come frequently and meditate upon thy divine features. May we read there thy gentleness and thy humility, and learn how to form our hearts in the practice of these two virtues, which thou desirest to see shine in thy servants. 
Mary, our mother, and St. Joseph, help us to do so. Through the merits of thy precious blood and thy holy face, O Jesus, grant us our petition. And you can contain your petitions here. My Jesus, pardon and mercy. Prayer in honor of the dolors of the Blessed Virgin. O most holy and afflicted Virgin, Queen of Martyrs, who stood beneath the cross, witnessing the agony of thy dying son, look down with a mother's tenderness and pity on us as we kneel before thee to venerate thy dolors and place our requests with filial confidence in the sanctuary of thy wounded heart. Present them on our behalf to Jesus through the merits of his most sacred passion and death, together with thy sufferings at the foot of the cross. And through the united efficacy of both, obtain the favor which we humbly ask. To whom shall we go in our wants and miseries, if not to thee? O mother of mercy, who having so deeply drunk of the chalice of thy son, graciously alleviate the sufferings of those who still sigh in this land of exile. Amen. Prayer for the souls in purgatory. My Jesus, by the sorrows thou hast suffered, in thy agony in the garden, in thy scourging and crowning with thorns, in the way to Calvary, in thy crucifixion and death, have mercy on the souls in purgatory, and especially on those who are most forsaken. Deliver them from the dire torments they endure. Call them and admit them to thy most sweet embrace in paradise. Amen. Pater noster, quies in celi, sanctificator nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in celo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum de nobis hodie, et dimiti nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitibus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libra nos amalo. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostrae. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostrae. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostrae. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto, sicut erat in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. O bleeding face, O face divine, be every adoration thine. O bleeding face, O face divine, be every adoration thine. O bleeding face, O face divine, be every adoration thine. We are going to continue with part four of the series, The Irish Fight, for the Latin Mass by Sean Dartre or Dartrehi. I'm not sure precisely how it's pronounced. It's spelled D-A-R-T-R-A-I-G-H-E. He's obviously a fine Irishman. This is uh, entitled The Rise of O'Neill. And it's very beautiful, uh, moving, tragic, but also inspirational um, how hard Catholics in Ireland fought to preserve the faith Many of them became martyrs for the faith. This was initially published yesterday, as I'm recording this, February 16th, 2023, over at onepeter5.com, which is a fine website run by Mr. Timothy S. Flanders. Go over and uh, 
check out what they publish there. It's always good stuff. With Connick pacified, the crowd turned to the most daunting task yet. The northern province of Ulster was the most Catholic and Gaelic in all of Ireland. Unlike the other Gaelic fiefdoms, Ulster had remained largely united under its traditional princes, the great O'Neill dynasty, with strong clan links to the Scottish Highlands and deep trading links to Spain. Ulster was militarily and commercially robust, confident in its ancient identity, and well-hardened to the wages of war. Initially, it seemed as if Ulster would capitulate without a fight. The O'Neill clan, led by Hugh O'Neill, had nominally submitted to the Queen and, as far as the government was aware, actively aided the Crown in the suppression of the lesser northern lordships. When a vast shipment of lead arrived in Ireland bound for O'Neill, they trusted his explanation that it was to repair the roof of his castle at Dungannon. It was to be a costly mistake. In 1595, O'Neill turned on the English and reversed their advances in the north through a series of crippling defeats. His lightning campaign changed utterly the face of the war. He sent riders after his victories to herald the news. The English army in Ulster had been defeated. Immediately, in a great wave of sword and flame, the subdued lords and peasants of Connacht and Munster rose up once again. Castle after castle fell, until virtually the entire island outside of the Pale bent its knee to O'Neill. O'Neill seemed to be on the verge of reclaiming his ancestral birthright. His dynasty had, from the age of St. Patrick till 1002, sat on the ancient throne of the High Kings of Ireland. The Catholic Norman lords of the Pale stood as the one great barrier between him and the city of Dublin. If they joined him, the city would certainly fall, and English power in Ireland would finally be at its end. At the height of his power, he wrote a declaration and had it disseminated throughout the Pale. In it, he makes his cause clear to the hesitant Palesman, solemnly vowing to, quote, employ myself to the utmost of my power for the extirpation of heresy, the planting of the Catholic religion, and the delivery of our country, end quote. It was a plan that was neatly summed up in his motto, pro fide et patria, for faith and fatherland. The government panicked at this declaration. Fearing that the Catholic lords would join him and immediately enlisted the premier lords and scholars of the Pale to write a rebuttal, Lord Devlin responded that Catholics were enjoined to suffer evil monarchs as well as good and that the loyalty they owed to the queen could not be abandoned since their oaths could not be dispensed with. She was rightful queen, heretic or not. She demanded their loyalty. The pale would not rise. The Anglican counterattack. In 1599, Lord Essex arrived in Ireland with 18,000 men, the largest English army ever assembled. The Queen's favorite and hero of the infamous raid on Cadiz that destroyed the Spanish navy, Essex had one goal, to defeat the Irish and bring the country back into line. Marching northwest to retake Sligo from the Irish, and avail of its port for the future campaign into Ulster, the army marched along the Bothair Bute through the Curlew Mountains. On the Feast of the Assumption, the army was attacked and defeated by O'Donnell of Tyrconnell, forcing a retreat. The remaining English forces never recovered. <clears throat> excuse me, never recovered. 
Besieged in their castles, countless men perished from disease and starvation. By the end of the year, Essex had been recalled to London and executed. The new Lord Deputy was not a man of tender conscience. Mountjoy learned from the devastation that had brought Munster to surrender almost 20 years before and began a similar process in Ulster. Using amphibious raids from the sea, he rampaged through the north with a single objective, utter destruction. He did not seek to establish garrisons or take castles or engage in battle. His only target was the farmland of the north. The raids on Ulster intensified in May and June of 1600. His first target was the hay crop and the fattening cattle on the summer pastures. No quarter was to be given to the villagers. At the end of the summer, he targeted with devastating effect the grain harvest, burning the fields in the midst of the summer heat. The mills and farms in particular were to be destroyed. By the winter, the intended effect took hold, and Ulster suffered crippling famine. By 1601, the famine was seriously hampering the Irish, and O'Neill was weakening. The population began to lose faith in him as the starvation of their families gathered pace. The demands of the army likewise put even greater burden on the starving population. Although he managed to defeat an English invasion of the north at the Battle of the Moiré Pass, the collapsing morale of the army was making the further continuation of the war unlikely. And then, in October 1601, a message arrived at O'Neill's court. The long-awaited Spanish had finally arrived. The Spanish Reinforcements the joyous news was, however, not without its bite. Due to stormy weather, the Spanish had not landed in O'Neill's stronghold of the north, as had been planned, but at Kinsale, on the far southern coast of Ireland. With the winter closing in and the land in the grip of famine, he called the army out for this great battle. In Dublin, the news of a Spanish invasion sent the administration into chaos. Dispatches from London had warned that the crown was on the verge of bankruptcy, and now the depleted forces had to contend with the Spanish army. Mountjoy settled the panic and levied all crown forces available in the Pale and force-marched south to Kinsale, arriving before the town and set to besieging the Spanish inside the walls with a constant barrage, barrage of artillery. O'Neill, hearing that the Spanish were trapped in the town, immediately set out from Ulster with the army. The winter was hard that year, and the chroniclers tell us of heavy snows and rains, that bedogged the Irish on their 300-mile march south. Desperate to reach Kinsale, O'Neill allowed no lengthy rest for the army, save one. In December, the army took a detour and arrived at the Abbey of the Holy Cross. This venerable monastery possesses one of the great relics of Ireland, a fragment of the true cross sent to King Donnell by Pope Urban III. O'Donnell, whose army displayed the cross lifted upright and whose dynastic motto was in hoc signo vincus, is noted to have paid special reverence for the relic. Their pilgrimage would not be without its blessings. Before leaving the abbey, news reached the Irish of a secret supply caravan making its way to the English at Kinsale. Sending his cavalry, O'Neill seized the supply train, cutting off Mountjoy from badly needed food and ammunition. The English army began to starve, and in the fetid conditions of the camp, as well as the bitter winter weather, disease and desertion began to take hold. Soon after, Mountjoy beheld the Irish army take hold of the hills behind him. 
sandwiched now between the Irish on the hills and the Spanish in the town, and with the last English forces of Ireland gathered in the squalor and disease of the camp, Mountjoy's mind must have turned to the pale. Now virtually defenseless, he is recorded as having said, the kingdom is lost. In the early hours of Christmas Eve, 1601, a traitor from O'Neill's camp came before him and warned that at dawn the Irish would launch their attack. It was the vital lifeline Mountjoy needed, for he knew well that the fate of the kingdom would be decided at the walls of Kinsale. As the sun rose on that Christmas Eve, the Irish did not find the English unprepared. Volley after volley of assault was attempted on their positions, to no avail. The English cavalry, reputed the finest in Europe, began their charge. O'Donnell led his men into the boggy ground of a valley, hoping that the horses would become stuck in the mire. But the frost of the night before left the ground hard as stone. The cavalry smashed into O'Donnell's battalions and scythed them down. O'Neill, seeing his ally breaking in the valley, charged his men from the hills to assist him. The English, seeing their chance, took the hill and charged down into the valley. The Irish were utterly routed and fled northwards to Ulster in complete defeat. The Spaniards abandoned the town of Kinsale and returned to their ships, sailing out of Kinsale Harbor with the news that the great Catholic army had been broken. On their way, they met a new fleet of Spanish ships on its way to Ireland with fresh reinforcements for the Catholic cause. Both fleets returned to Spain, never to assist Ireland again. The Fall of Ulster With O'Neill's army in tatters and his people devastated by years of war and famine, the English launched a coordinated invasion of Ulster in the spring. This time, they met only minimal resistance. Mountjoy took O'Neill's castle at Dungannon and burned it. He then proceeded to Tullahoe, to the great stone of the O'Neills, the spot where the dynasty had inaugurated all of its princes from time immemorial and had the stone smashed into pieces. The monasteries, which until now had remained untouched, were sacked, the religious martyred. At Coleraine, the venerated image of Our Lady was burned alongside other celebrated images of pilgrimage in Ulster. Father McFurge, the prior, and the 24 brothers of the Dominican friary in the town were slain. At Derry, the celebrated monastery of St. Columba, 32 of the monks were killed in an orgy of bloodletting. The Bishop of Derry was hung and disemboweled. The Flight of the Earls With the whole of the island, now finally under crown authority, a more brutal phase in the persecutions could begin. One of the more horrific moments of these days occurred at Scattery Island in the River Shannon. A group of 49 monks who had agreed to leave the country for Catholic Europe were weighed down with chains and thrown overboard to drown. Father Bernard Moriarty, the Vicar General of Dublin, faced sustained torture by soldiers. Eventually, they broke his thigh bones and interred him in the dungeons of Dublin Castle, where he died in the squalor and darkness that once housed Margaret Ball. I include the details of these martyrs not because they are particularly special. In any study of this period, the lists of martyrs that are casually recorded by the authorities read something like an accounts ledger, an almost endless roll of bloodshed and torture. When one reads these lists, certain names stick out, certain places stick out, but in reality, there are few places on this island that were not watered in those years by martyred blood. 
1607, the flower of the Gaelic aristocracy gathered at the little fishing village of Rathmullen in County Donegal. The great dynasties that had ruled Ireland from ancient times were all present alongside clergy, scholars, bards, and scribes. Among them was O'Neill, but O'Donnell was not present. He had fled Ireland for Spain immediately after Kinsale to raise another Spanish army for the Catholic cause, only to be poisoned by an English agent. There would be no more assistance from the continent. Great crowds of farmers and servants also gathered to witness the seminal moment in Irish history. When the winds permitted, the jewel of Gaelic Ireland boarded a ship in the harbor and sailed into exile. The old Gaelic nobility was gone. The assembled crowds could not have been ignorant of what that moment meant, for they had just witnessed the death of a civilization that had been ancient when Julius Caesar first climbed the steps of the Roman Senate. In the end, it died, not with the clamor and clash of war, but with the disappearance of sails over the horizon. The years of war were now over. The years of blood were about to begin, to be continued. As I've stated earlier, it is a tragic story, the history of Ireland, but also a very inspirational one. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, those brave men and women who died, who laid down their lives for our Lord Jesus Christ and the one true faith, are in a very, very high spot in heaven. And they are a mighty example for each and every one of us. We might not face a red martyrdom in this life, but there will probably be, if there not already has been, a, a white martyrdom for many of us. The anti-Catholic prejudice in the world is palpable. Sometimes nowadays, even amongst bishops and priests, we must persevere. We must fight on and we will draw inspiration from the Irish martyrs in doing that. And especially in the fight to keep the traditional Latin mass alive. Let us pray now for help and for healing. As I mentioned, helping autism through learning and outreach located on the web at halo-soma.org. And episode 277 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Let us help our non-speaking friends and family members. That website and that episode of Our Lady's podcast talk about RPM, Rapid Prompting Method, which is a system of communication for non-speakers. Before RPM, we didn't even know my niece's favorite color. Now we know she is what I can only describe as a, she's a comprehensive genius skilled in composing music, skilled at mathematics, skilled at different languages. We would have known none of this if it weren't for RPM. So let's get the message out there because communication is a human right. Once again, halo-soma.org and episode 277 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Let us pray for help and healing for our non-speaking friends and family members. Almighty and eternal God, healer of those who trust in you, through the intercession of St. Raphael, Archangel, hear my prayer for non-speakers and their families. In your tender mercy, restore them to spiritual and bodily health, that they may give you thanks, praise your name, and proclaim your wondrous love to all. I ask this through Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. Memorary to St. Joseph. 
Remember, O most chaste spouse of the Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, my spiritual father, and beg your protection. O foster father of the Redeemer, despise not my petitions, but in your goodness hear and answer me. Amen. The three Hail Marys in honor of the immaculate purity of Our Lady of Fatima. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostri, amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostri, amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostri, amen. A Gloria Patri for a special intention. Gloria Patri et Filio, Spiritui Sancto, sicut erat in principio et nunc et semper et in saecula saeculorum, amen. Sweetheart of Mary, be the salvation of Russia, Spain, Portugal, Europe, the United States of America, Canada, and the whole world. Virgo potens, ora pronobis. Sancta Joseph, terra daimonem, ora pronobis. Sancta Raphael Archangeli, ora pronobis. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you very kindly, my friends, for listening to episode 444 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. In your charity, please share Our Lady's podcast with everyone you know. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Fatima Podcast. And most importantly, please offer up prayers and sacrifices for our Catholic bishops. Goodbye and God love you.